Welcome back, podcast listeners. Today's podcast takes you on a captivating journey into the world of leadership, transformation, and unlocking human potential. Today, Tony and I meet with Anna Reid, an inspiring force in the realm of executive advisory and CEO confidence. Born into multicultural Australian community, with a sporting background ingrained in her DNA, Anna's path to success has been nothing short of extraordinary. With over a decade of experience spanning six continents, Anna has the privilege of working alongside some of the most influential CEOs and leaders of our time. Starting as a professional athlete, she discovered her profound fascination with human performance, its correlation to effective leadership. Throughout her illustrious career, Anna has provided groundbreaking transformation solutions across various industries, including e-commerce, retail, mining, consumer healthcare, and many more. In 2020, she founded Humanity, a company dedicated to serving CEOs and leaders worldwide as they navigate the complexities of today's ever-changing landscape. Anna firmly believes in a new frontier of leadership, one that is purpose-driven, people-focused, and planet-saving. Her visionary approach aims to propel companies into becoming high-performing and sustainable enterprises, instigating exceptional change that shapes our future. Anna's remarkable achievements have not gone unnoticed. She's an award-winning leader, um, leadership entrepreneur, recognized for her um, model-breaking approach to leadership. As a managing partner of a London-based leadership firm, she received accolades for Managing Partners Forum for her transformation work. Beyond her professional endeavors, Anna has dedicated herself to fostering positive change around the globe. From coaching the next generation of Chinese CEOs in partnership with the Chinese Entrepreneur Club, to leading sports development projects in West Africa. Her commitment to service empowerment knows no bounds. And when Anna isn't busy inspiring clients and transforming companies, she embraces a vibrant and creative life. Recently settling in Tampa, Florida, she enjoys playing basketball and embracing the wonders of the great outdoors. So join us today in an exhilarating adventure as we explore the extraordinary journey of Anna Reid, uncovering the secrets of leadership the power of transformation and the limits of possibilities. Anna, welcome to the Cock and Bond podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So we were just chatting off air um, there's just then about a bit of background and how we sort of got introduced to each other. But I sort of wanted to throw the first question to you. But how did you actually get into your line of work professionally? Yeah, good question. I I, I often um, blur my professional and personal life together, and I think that's kind of been my story for the last 15 to 20 years, is that I've always been fueled by my passions. And so I started with a passion for basketball, and uh, obviously, you know, in Australia, spent many years pursuing that path, uh, played seven pro, uh, and uh, was always was always ambitious enough to want to go professional but at a time where women's basketball you know obviously still isn't getting paid very well and and it was always a question of uh do do I want to pursue a basketball career or do I need to actually go earn some real money (laughs) and so I think in my 20s I was at a crossroads with that but I went to university of course and uh and, and and did my and did my degree um but I always um yeah, I, I just wasn't sure whether basketball was always, was going to be the direct path to follow. And so I went into the professional world and I started as a HR graduate uh, at Melbourne and Olympic Parks, actually. Um, so it was part of the Australian Open Tennis, the Commonwealth Games when they were in Melbourne, and it was the coolest job to have coming out of university. Yeah. Um, but I was also very naive, I think, because I'd been groomed in this world of elite sport and I was always trying to be my best. I was always um, trying to be ambitious and set goals and all that and be part of a team and work as part of a high-performance team. And I went into the corporate world and thought, great, I'm going to see all of this in the corporate world because these people in the corporate world, you know, they make a lot of money. Uh, they're clearly doing something really, really, really well. And that's when I just became really shocked at the state of leadership. And I think my naivety put me on a, put me on a path of curiosity, uh, on, 
you know, why why do we employ leaders in positions uh, and pay them really well and they're not actually really good at being leaders? And why do we see so many people burnt out? And why do we see uh, organisations not being these high-performance playgrounds, you know, where everyone can be their best? And and I think the turning point for me was in uh, West Africa when I was uh, an expat and I had a very privileged uh, lifestyle in the sixth poorest country in the world. And so I was making all this money, um, you know, moving into high positions of leadership. Uh, and I looked out my window and it was, you know, clearly you know, a really tough place to, to live. Uh, and, uh, and I also saw, um, really evidently that a lot of these corporations, and I was part of a big one at the time, uh, actually, uh, they, they, they don't often serve uh, the, the, they don't often serve what, what it is that they say that they, who they are. And I guess, you know, I saw really bad examples of leadership, uh, in these, in these corporations. I saw, uh, a lot of unethical leadership. Uh, and I just thought this, there's got to be a better way. Uh, there's, and, and then I guess during my time there, um, I also felt like there was more that these companies could do, especially in a place like West Africa. And, Whilst they say they do it, they don't actually execute on it a lot of the time. And so I just thought there's got to be a better way. And I left the, um, I, I, I left the corporate world and I said, I'm going to go meet the best, uh, psychologists in the world. I'm going to go be, meet the best experts, uh, in, in, in entrepreneurs in business. I'm going to go meet the best CEOs in the world and I'm going to try and understand what great leadership is. And so I did that. I went um, to London and I was part of a CEO consulting firm, managing partner there. Uh, and uh, I ended up um, being a content director for the BBC uh, as part of a BBC program called the CEO Guru, where we got access to some of the top CEOs in the world. So we met with Richard Branson, Meg Whitman, the Airbnb founders, you know, some, some really high profile CEOs. And I just started to become really curious. Uh, and not only did we meet CEOs, we met neuroscientists, we met uh, a lot of really um, uh, high le- world-class experts. Uh, and then I started to realize that there were good CEOs and there were great CEOs. And I just became curious and studied that. And then I ended up observing over 50 of these CEOs all around the world, including Australia, uh, and uh, decided that there was, a, you know, great CEOs sort of balanced three areas really well. Uh, that was the business, the social, and the human performance of a business. And so I kind of developed my own model and ended up starting my own company. And now and I realized as well that, that leadership is holistic. So it's not just about business and results. It's about who we are as, as individuals and people. And so we, have, we blend, my company I work for blends the best of business it blends the best of leadership, psychology, health and humanities. And we come in with this holistic approach uh, in order to really transform an organization from the inside out. So I see myself as a uh, as an executive coach now leading my own company. Uh, but I also see myself as a, as a change agent and a transformation specialist. And I think that's been because I've always been very curious about the change that I can take on and embark on over time and you know I think that's the biggest issue that we're facing now is that companies just aren't changing fast enough and they need to. Yeah. And yeah. can I ask can sorry, can I just ask a quick question there, Jamie, if it's okay. Generational thought processes and changes. I remember when I was an eighteen year old or probably seventeen actually, uh, finished year twelve, thought I was going to conquer the world as triathlons. Mum told me to go and get a job because I was didn't want to continue at university. And um, I do remember when she said to me, why don't you go and get a job at a bank because you can work there for 40 years and eventually you end up becoming the boss basically because every your boss dies. You know, so it just seems to be a promotion by virtue of death, you know, death above you. And and I did see that in organi- large organisations that I'd actually worked with, but that's that generational thing has certainly changed. People aren't just going and staying in the one job forever now. And for me, I just could not have thought of anything worse in the world. So is it a lot of leaders today, because especially in Australia um, or even the US in a, in a lot of ways too, 
a lot of the leaders today are children of immigrants, so they haven't necessarily come in here being boxed into here's how you learn, here's how you lead, here's how you study, and especially those that have come from sporting backgrounds as well, like, say, yourself has. Is is it a completely new change of leadership style because different, not just different generations, but different thought processes, different backgrounds of people? Maybe we haven't had to have done it quite as hard as what our parents have had uh, had to do. It they were really hard workers. We looked at what they've done and sort of want to grow from that as well. Is that fair when you start looking at it? I mean, you mentioned a couple of those CEOs. I always fly Virgin within Australia, and I love Whitman's chocolate. So, uh, so, so, no, so I support two of those CEOs that you actually just spoke about. But the so on that basis, is that a lot of the change that has happened as well through generations, the thought processes? Yeah, I would I would say yes. I mean, I think you know you look at what uh, a, a CEO who's in his sixties. Um, what what he saw of as success versus what how how a younger person would define success now, and I think you know when when we did speak to a lot of CEOs, we found that there were different types uh, of CEOs, and so I think um, now we're seeing just even more typologies come out in terms of so you know you've got classically you've got commercial executors. Uh, you've got value driving type CEOs, you've got people champion type CEOs, but now we're seeing, you know, so much more, uh, the landscape changed so much. So there's like a, a, people, I guess, are, are not defining themselves, they're, they're defining themselves in different ways. And so I think, yeah, the younger generation just has uh, a lot more of a, a challenge as well in terms of how, uh, I don't, I, I think they're, they're a new set of challenges. Uh, that, that are coming up for the younger generation. Yeah. You, Anna, you talked about, I guess, um, being lucky, as you stated, working across six different continents. Um, you know, you, you've been all around the world and you talked about working with these top CEOs that Tony mentioned as well. Um, what's some of the most memorable moments um, of, of observing those top CEOs? <laughs> oh, goodness. There are so many. I mean, I, I really feel blessed to have seen and experienced so many different cultures. I think I, I could talk about the, Australia, the Aussie CEOs. You know, I met with Andy Penn and the CEO of Australia Post and uh, we met with uh, the CEO of Westfield, Steve Lowey, and Alan Joyce, the CEO of, um, uh, of, uh, of Qantas. And I think, you know, just, just going back to my roots was, was, really, was really profound and learning that, you know, the Australian CEOs, there was this. We, we we wrote a we wrote an article with the BBC. You know, are are Australian CEOs just lucky? You know, is it is it the lucky country? Are they just lucky? And we we soon found out that that you know they, they were they were hardworking. It comes it's in our culture. There's like this drive. There's this ambition. There's this determination, and that's what defines you know Australian leadership. Uh, and so yes, we may have been a lucky country, but you know you've got some real sort of driving type CEOs. I, I think that one of the most memorable experiences on the same trip was actually in Thailand. Uh, so we we found out that in Thailand uh, they have the greatest um, quota of um, female CEOs than anywhere else in the world. And so we wanted to to try and um, we wanted to try and find out why that was the case. And we, 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 we sort of explored that and I think there's, there's a history in Thailand where women, uh, are considered equal, more equal to men. And I think, um, you know, it, it may be as a result of the, 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 the Buddhism sort of culture that they have there as well as, you know, the, um, the, the royal family as well. But there was, there's never sort of a divide between men and women in, in, and that goes back to its historical roots. And so I think uh, as well, they, they mentioned a story uh, about how women used to be heroes in their history. So they actually fought for their country and they fought alongside men. And so I think, you know, um, when it comes to men, men have never really sort of felt threatened by women being in senior leadership positions or being in the CEO, in CEO positions. And I think that, you know, in, 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 in our Western culture, that has been a problem historically. Uh, so, you know, I think it was just really interesting to see how those gender roles play out, uh, and, 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 and it has a lot to do with the history of a culture, 
uh, and how much culture and history shapes uh, the state of you know a lot of organisations and leadership. The current firm Humanity aims to make changing companies that develop sort of high-performing and sustainable businesses, and we've talked around all the different types of leaders. Like, how do you define that change, and what sort of strategies do you implement with these companies? Yeah, I think the buzzword that I that I've used before is exponential, yeah. and I the, the story around that really for me is when I spent a fair bit of time in Silicon Valley. Uh, we we, uh, we met with Singularity University. I spent some time with the professors there. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, uh, but they're, they they provide executive education consulting, really in that exponent, exponential technology space. So, how do companies stay ahead of the trend when it comes to exponential technology, which is kind of where we are now. We're in the middle of that, and they were predicting a lot of this ten years ago. Um, and so what I sort of realized is while, while I was listening and watching how exponential this change is, that's so exciting, but it's actually quite scary as well. And uh, it made me realize that if technology is going to change at this rate, then us as human beings, as leaders, we have to be on that change curve as well. Uh, and we have to, we can see now with the rise of AI, we have to be, ready to adapt to that um, to that macro environment that we're currently feeling very uh, challenged by. Uh, and so I think for me, you know, it, it was about embracing change as a mindset. I see change as like a muscle. It's something that you have to develop. You have to practice over time. Uh, and a lot of and, and unfortunately, uh, the human condition doesn't like change. We don't like to change. It's, it's, it's the most difficult thing for us. So I often say to my clients, there are two, two ways to change, the hard way or the hardest way. You know, the hardest way is where you don't choose change, that you fail to actually choose it and embrace it. And the hard way is, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's, it requires hard work. It requires commitment. And I also realized that from speaking to a lot of these CEOs, they, they often want rapid change for their organizations, but they're not willing to do the hard work of transforming themselves. And so that's where we sort of uh, really come in and we work with uh, executive teams and senior leadership teams more specifically uh, because we know and there's evidence that change directed from the top you know, uh, a role model from the top is going to influence the front line. Uh, and and we really ha- help them get onto that change journey. And we, we use a variety of different techniques in psychology, in humanities, uh, in order to be able to, you know, help them go on that change journey and be able to make change that is fast but also effective. And so that's really sort of how we've done we've done it previously. Yeah. Could you give us, I guess, some examples that you've used with these CEOs to implement this change that we're talking about? Let's not go the hardest way. Let's let's talk the hard way. <laughs> yeah, sure. But also, just to add to that, Anna, why are we also? And you can add this as part of your answer. Why are we also so reluctant to change when we, when we do not? As as an example, you know, I know that if I want to lose weight, uh, not eating donuts would help. As an example, so why why are we so reluctant to change uh, as well? So when you talk about this, yeah, sure. I, well, I think um, there's, there's a number of factors. I think that that people are reluctant to change, and depending on each individual. But for the most part, you know, um, it, it, it it's it's a, it's a fear. I mean, there's a, there's a fear that's and, and people are uncomfortable with operating in fear. They'd much prefer to stay in a place of comfort <laughs> and to be in a place of fear. We need to be uncomfortable. And and it's interesting because the higher up you go in an organisation, sometimes I see the more fearful. But, you know, at the at the real sort of root level, these these executives are scared because they've got so much on the line there's so much that they're carrying in terms of responsibility and so i think we kind of use that we we identify that fear uh in in an organization and 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 we do that very carefully uh we do that 
you know, with we, we do that with, with compassion, we do that with care, and we do it in a way where we provide safety. Uh, and so that's one of our interventions is how do we provide psychological safety at an executive level where these types of conversations often have never been had before. You know, being a professional athlete, it was fine to talk about fear all the time, you know, and it was fine to uh, be vulnerable and, and, and show up and have a bad day and be able to talk to your teammates about it. But that's just hasn't been the norm in a lot of, uh, a lot of corporations and, and organizations. So, you know, a, a big part of our intervention when we go in is, is, is just this, this truth telling, you know, we really sort of set the scene around how do we ground out the current realities that are occurring in this organization as of today? You know, how, you know, how do we really feel about the business performance? How do we really feel about the future strategic direction? You know, how, how do we really feel about the culture? Uh, and I think, you know, when we, when you get those honest conversations happening in a room, uh, there's so much that can happen. The, and I think that's always our starting point is just to have, really help them ground out the reality and get under the skin of what, what the truth really is within, within, you know, any sort of executive context. So, and is the DNA then differently when you're talking, say, to a company that is listed on the stock exchange versus a privately owned, but might be an extremely large, you know, multi-billion dollar company, but privately owned where when you're every quarter having to take calls from fund managers and they're just constantly looking for growth, 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 otherwise yeah, they're going to start selling off uh, the shares uh, versus a private company where we can actually talk about you know our fears you know um, um because if an executive at one of those listed companies spoke openly about they're fearful of doing this because it could be bad for the company they could end up losing their job which could be you know a very lucrative job usually is an extremely lucrative job does that mean they might miss out on their bonus once again a private company you just see how it's going but you don't necessarily see what's under the bonnet from an outsider's perspective it's not in the front page of the Australian Financial Review or the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis so is there different DNA and as a result different different people leading those different organizations as well and their different fear factors that they might have I would say yes it's a it's a it's a really good point and I think it's 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 a you know in a public organization it's it's really hard to um find that that level of transparency that's going to be able to you know catalyze and make a change because it, because there is so much at risk in terms of the public profile um but I guess that again, the principles are the same though. You know, why are we here? What are we doing? You know, what, 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 what are we here to serve? Who are we here to serve? You know, asking some of those deeper questions, um, so that, you know, any, any executive team can unite, um, not just around a company purpose, but about around a team purpose as well. And I think, um, you know, what we find is that often, you know, you walk into these organizations and you have High performing A plus executives, but you don't have a high performing A plus team. Uh, and I think when, when you start to build that collective team, you start to see that there's far great, far greater less risk of some of these reputational issues coming about. Um, and I also think, you know, in, in, in a public company, so I work with um, a public company, I work with a, a very large um, private company as well. You, you definitely do see a difference there in, in, in some of the behaviours where, where I think a private company, just from the examples I've had, you know, that, that it can be more, uh, there is a greater focus on culture overall, whereas in a public company, it is just very much, a, 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 there is a DNA of results. Uh, and I think with that um, comes a lot of what I call performative leadership, where we really always have to be seen to be performing even when we're not. Uh, and, but that then comes at a cost to actually building a culture that's, uh, enduring, sustaining, uh, over time. So it's, but, but you know, you know, it, some people enjoy being in that highly ambitious performative space. But I think for the most part, um, we're starting to see more and more how that's becoming less, less of a favorable trend for people. So 
Just before we were talking, um, I guess companies now looking with an ESG lens um, across their business, and um, I guess we were talking about our own funds management approach, but how these um, companies need to evolve into a sort of new era. Um, could you elaborate on this new sort of frontier of leadership and how leaders can help transition their business with this lens? Yeah. Um, so I think I think we 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 sort of at this tipping point now. Uh, like we, we we've passed this tipping point where leadership is no longer. I think we spoke about this before, Tony. It's no longer power power based and fear based. You know, if if we're going if we're going to save the planet, we have to go back to our humanity, right? We have to we have to be able to understand and 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 go back to what it means to be really human. And I think you know the, the new frontier of leadership is I think not a new concept. It's what we've always seen historically. What great leadership is, you know, le- leadership. Uh, you know, you take the greatest leaders of our time, Nelson Mandela. You know, what did he what did he stand for? What did he represent? And 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 I think that's what we need to come back to is some of the uh, ancient principles of leadership and bring them into into today because. You know, the human condition has has always been the same. You know, we can be completely barbaric and then we can be completely evolved and and, and, and compassionate and kind. But we need more of that kindness now in order to be able to, you know, have have a world that is uh, flourishing and sustaining. And I think a company that's flourishing and sustaining as well. So I think, you know, it's a choice at the end of the day, and I always say that leadership is a choice. Uh, and so more people uh, are, being, are being forced or forced or need to actually make some more conscious choices about how they want to show up and how they want to lead their organisations. So what are some of the best practices? Sorry, Jamie, I keep cutting you off. I was going to say, what are some of those best practices that you've seen in some of those, you know, you've, you've interviewed some of the top CEOs and leaders from all around the world and actually worked uh, with them, uh, you know, hand in hand with them as well. What are some of those? And I know it differs from leader to leader, but what are some of those top practices that you might have seen, whether it be from a personal level or from a leadership within a business level as well, you know, other aspects of their life that make them become high performers in their organisation as well? Uh, I think one of the main uh, part, one of the main areas I think uh, that that I've seen successful CEOs, so say Richard Branson for example, they're, they're, they're mission driven. They're driven by mission, uh, and 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 they're 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 not incremental in terms of how they grow their organisations. They're pioneering in terms of how they they run their organisations, and so I think. You know, a, a mission-driven leader is a leader that that sees beyond just the, the, the you know just the, that sees the impact of of how of what their organisation could be or what their own impact could be. Uh, so I think you know having a mission uh, requires you to be very creative. It requires you to be not just an MBA student. It requires you to also be a very sort of creative individual. Uh, so, so I would say that that's that's one that I've seen. I think um, just this idea of being uh, humble as well, I think, is a really important part of leadership uh, and, and a best practice. There's so much that's happened uh, as a result of executive hubris and uh, and greed, and I think you know that's been a common norm across corporate America and a lot of Western um, corporations, and so just this this idea of you know building building a healthy ego and having a strong character uh, is is again it's it's it you could call it a best practice but it's just common sense uh, but in in a system where self interest has been what's perpetuated you know the success of organisations for such a long time. Uh, going back to those sort of fundamental principles of building a good character, being humble, um, and, and, and being a, a conscious leader, uh, I think they're some of the best practices that top leadership really need to be mindful of uh, as as they move forward. 
Do they have, uh, do some of those leaders that you've seen who are the real high performers, uh, you mentioned it earlier, uh, when we first started speaking in, in your introduction, but do they, ha- they seem to have lives outside of work as well. It's not, just doesn't seem to be 23 hours a day at work. They, they tend to have social lives. They tend to mix well with other people. Um, it's not just work or their social life just being around work as well. Is that fair to say? Yes, I would say yes. Um, but I think it's a very hard, I'm talking at a CEO level, right? In terms of the, the, those that I've met and those that I've worked with. It's very hard to, to, for them to, to make that, it's, it's not even balanced, create that harmony <laughs> in, in their life. Um, and I think it comes with a lot of cost, uh, for many of these CEOs. And I think, um, the, the best ones probably haven't done it historically, but are realizing that it's important to do in the future. Um, I, I don't think, I think COVID's just changed the game a lot. Uh, and to be a, a, an effective, great CEO, uh, now I think you need to have some sort of, uh, connection to something outside of just work. Um, and, and, and I, and, and that can be quite difficult, uh, for someone who's lived their whole kind of life in pursuit of, you know, growing a large organization. Um, and that again, always that, that that again requires them to ask some of the deeper questions around what what is my purpose and why am I here and what do I want to do um, that's outside of my my organisation. I see so many CEOs and executives that um, you know end up unfortunately you know not being able to get off that that treadmill and, and ending up divorcing and you know and and, and that's that's the cost. There's so many examples of that. So I'm not sure when and how that will change, uh, whether, whether this next generation will, will change it, but certainly for that, um, you know, even the young generation, like, you know, the Airbnb founders, they're all young guys, you know, but you, you know, I often do a lot of coaching, uh, with, 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 with them around how do they, how do they come back to, you know, some of those, family and principles that they need in that, that actually give them the sustenance to do what they do. But it's, it's a hard one. It's a very difficult one. Yeah. I, I always make sure we mention, we spoke about this off air, but I can't start the day without my meditation. Um, if, if I don't meditate in the morning, I know my day is not going to be as focused as what it should be. And I also perform so much better if I do some sort of sport in the morning. Uh, you know, even if it's just half an hour of movement, but doing some type of physical activity in the morning, I have a far better day, uh, as a result of that. Uh, maybe it's because of the endorphin rush you get through it. I'm not too sure. You come from a sporting background as well. I mean, I know Jamie goes to the gym every lunchtime, as an example. So for him, it's lunchtime, especially having a newborn. It's probably not as easy anymore to get up in the mornings, but I, I just find that having something different to me, the sport is to myself, you know, coming from a swimming background. It's very, you can't talk with your head underwater. It's, mm. uh, so you're actually, so for me, that's my time to myself. It's, you know, and it would, before my knees gave out of me being able to go for a good three hour run on a Sunday morning and nature was just second to none. You know, people would say, how could you do that? But for me, it was just the endorphin rush of actually taking in nature, which was something very special to me as well. But it yeah. was my time. Every so often I'd do it with some friends, but it was pretty much my time. Yeah, I think, and I think, to that extent, the, the the great great leaders will have that outlet. Absolutely, you know they'll they'll have they'll have their sport, they'll have their meditation, um, and and and, and, I, and they'll have their family as well. And I think I think the family one is the hardest one, you know, because again, you know, carving out time for ourselves again, it, it's invo- it, it, it's it's an I orientation, whereas family is very much a we orientation, and you. It, there's a lot of investment that's needed in family. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, CEOs do struggle with finding that balance with family and work a lot of the time. Um, but it's, you know, there, there are those that do it and, and it, there are those that, and there are those that do it well. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. 
Panorama at the different end of the spectrum to the two of you. You're about to have a baby in a month's time. Uh, Jamie's just had his nine weeks ago, and I've just become an empty nester a year ago. But now what's actually really interesting with my sons, like we, we had lunch together, I think it was last Sunday, uh, but I actually have to make appointments now to see them both. It's it's it's, re- it's actually really quite so because they've got their own lives as well. So yeah. when are we catching when are we catching up to have lunch? So yeah. so we organise it and we usually organise it a couple of weeks in advance and we go and we'll have lunch together and we we have a good laugh together and we spend those good few hours of real quality time together. No phones, no nothing. Everyone's present, and it's 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 really interesting. So it's a different end of the spectrum. But and one thing I encourage Jamie and all of our staff members because I used to do it, but. If there's a sporting day on, you go to you go to watch your in Jamie's case son, in my case sons, you go and watch that sporting event. There's there's nothing more important in in the world to that kid uh, trying their hardest, knowing that mum and dad are up there on in the in the stand to give them a hug, whether they come first, second, or last. And so, and I, I think that is just because they just they just like to show mum and dad well, mm. what they can actually do, and I think that's something that a lot of leaders forget when the kids are actually growing up. And I know. My parents' generation was, you know, in in some case that was just unheard of. You know, my father always did it with me, thankfully, but he was pretty much the only dad there. He was one dad with several mums. And, you know, but he was the only dad that would go to all those sporting events as well. So I suppose having a good role model helped me as well. But I think a lot of leaders forget that, and that's what can cause that conflict in family at times. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and. And I'm, I'm, I'm open to any advice as well because at the moment I, I, I'm having, I'm choosing to, to have children later in life. And so I've already got an established career. I'm established in my ways. And, and so it, it's, it's been a real adjustment to actually think, Oh wow, I have to, uh, it's been an identity change really. And I haven't, and, and, and he hasn't even arrived yet. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and, and how do I, how do I find that, that balance between being, uh, a, a great mom and still being able to have that ambition and, and drive and, and, and wanting to, you know, continue the work that I'm doing with my career. Uh, and, and I would imagine, you know, so many leaders are faced with this and, and women as well, like women especially, you know, especially, we, women now are increasingly becoming more uh, career focused and um and and I think you know, there's so much pressure on women to to perform as mum uh, as mums but also you know within within their own aspirations of their career so yeah it, it's it's not an easy one and I don't expect it to be easy but I'm definitely uh looking forward to the challenge of it and and, and the joy that comes with it Oh yeah, it's, it's not easy, but it's unbelievably enjoyable. And you know, it's just sometimes it means that you're up at 2 a.m. to do what you have to do, uh, because you're not going to miss that sports day where something had a deadline. You still had to do it and it was done and it was off at 6 a.m. And then you're off to the school and you're watching your kids at the athletics day or the swimming day and, and you know, or playing football. You know, my kids in the schools they went to, they had Saturday morning compulsory sports. So. And then they played sport on Sunday, so our whole weekend was made up of their sports, which was which was an error of my life where I probably put on a few extra kilos because uh, so, so I was spending more time. But uh, you know, even when uh, my oldest son Josh was playing football at half time, when they were at half time, I'd actually go for a run and be back just before uh, they started the third quarter, so just around queue. So it's just these little things that you do you do bring in, but it's. It's just so important to to them and to life in general as well. So if we go back, if we go, yep. Sorry, Sorry, Jamie. I think you're right on the females um, finding it harder as well, especially when having babies. Um, Like I look at my wife who's still working at the moment. Um, She's part of another part of the business. And, you know, it's sort of me racing out of a meeting last night to get home so she could have a client meeting as well. Um, So I'm looking after child and it is finding that sort of, juggling act and I know this morning I left her at about sort of 7 seven thirty, and she was on the laptop working away while you know our son was sleeping so it's you know she, she just tries to get on her laptop of all those times that he's sleeping and we've been quite fortunate that he, he is a good sleeper so she's been able to have those times but you know I think for them when a baby is, needs their mother in those you know the starting months um, years it's it's just such a hard act for them to balance yeah 
Yeah, I'm, I'm anticipating it, and thank you, like I said, again, because it, it, it helps me, it gives me a sense of comfort to hear that this is this is what people do, and they do it every day, and, and I'm not going to be the only, I'm, I'm, I'm alongside every other person on the planet that deals with this, right? Uh, so I uh, appreciate the uh, the insight, because uh, I tell you what, I'm nervous about how it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> And I can ask a question. Um, I'm, um, I loved the book by Jim Collins. I love all his books, but uh, Good to Great. And in, in the book Good to Great, he speaks about the five different levels of leadership and that level five leader. And when, when he was comparing the really great companies versus, say, some of the good companies, uh, he was speaking about that leadership. And you mentioned as an example Steve uh, Lowry, who is part of a huge, you know, intergenerational wealth transfer here in Australia, uh, yeah. being his father Frank's son. So when his father was the CEO, now he's had to come in and step into that role. I think sometimes that intergenerational wealth transfer or you're stepping into the shoes of your father, which has happened in a lot of great companies and you've seen them slowly, start, not in Westfield's case, but slowly start to, say, deteriorate um, over time. You know, iconic names that have been third or fourth generation by the time it's got to those other generations, they had more time partying than, you know, or even, you know, the story of Henry Ford, uh, his son, you know, died early just you know, young, but basically his father had such horrendous pressure, diff- completely different lifetime, but yeah. so much pressure uh, was put onto him uh, and he just wasn't his father, you know, so he was actually more like his mother. He was actually quite a creative uh, guy as well, but he was forced into that position. He he said, his father said, you're the boss, but then wouldn't let him do anything, uh, make any of those changes. So when you're actually looking at that level five leader, though, one of the things that actually struck me, all those great companies that let those level five leaders where it wasn't ego. In, in what, what I call, it wasn't a company run by a rock star. Because mm-hmm. uh, you can have a very, very successful company, and there's plenty of examples in the US and Australia uh, of, you know, very successful companies run by rock stars. But if that rock star fell off the perch, they haven't brought anyone else through. There's no other company. Uh, that's actually, you know, there's no one else in that company to be able to come through and actually keep driving it forward uh, yeah. from that level because that person was such a control freak or so egotistical. Uh, they wanted all the limelight and it was all about them and they weren't actually bringing anyone through. Do you see that in respect to some of these companies that there might be a rock star in there and you're talking about trying to help them with culture and sometimes culture needs to be changed as well, but that... Rockstar CEO just won't listen, is not interested, has basically got you there maybe to just tick slide seven of the, of the presentation for the board so they can say, yeah, it's, it's, we've spoken about it and paid some money and, and had someone come and speak to us about it, but nothing actually then gets implemented. Do you see that a bit as well? Yeah, we, I've seen that a lot, especially earlier on in my career when I first started doing this. They were the, they were the situations I was walking into often. Um, you know, you, you, it's, a, it's a rock star and underneath that is something quite pathological sometimes, right? It's this, uh, you know, need to be seen. It's this need to be recognized. And that's deep rooted in, you know, what I call sort of narcissistic behaviors. And so I think, you know, I, I've seen a lot of that and I've, I've learned a lot about bad leadership uh, as a result. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, in terms of the work we do now, we really qualify the the clients that we work with. They don't have to be perfect, but they have, and, and, and they can have a healthy level of narcissism. But we need we need to be able to see enough heart in them to want to change. Uh, and so you 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 do see a lot of that. And I think you know it, it comes down to I, I believe a lot in. Uh, the way that the world is evolving, that the, these types of leaders are getting more and more exposed. Uh, and, and it's giving people a lot more choice around who they want to be led by. Uh, and, and I think we're starting to see that now and more people are moving towards wanting more conscious level five, as you, as you call them leaders. And, uh, and, 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 and yeah, I mean, and, and, and ego is, is, is the enemy, but we need enough ego to be able to, you know, uh, to get the results as well and to build great organizations. I, I think of a great CEO that, um, I got to know, uh, he, this is the CEO of, uh, 
of Logitech. Uh, his name's Bracken Darrell. And uh, he's been with Logitech for a while. He's led them through the initial turnaround and transformation. And he, he really espouses the values of humility, you know, building a humble organization. And, 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 and having gotten to know him, um, he's got, yeah, quite a powerful ego, but he's so humble as well. So you, you can, you can be both. And, and, and I think the great story that I love from him was that he grew, uh, and transformed Logitech. And, and I think, you know, generally a, a CEO has this, I don't know if it's deep, if it's grounded in theory, but I've, I've heard that there's about a seven year sort of life, uh, for, for a CEO, uh, before they really need to look at themselves and say, am I the right person to, to lead this company in the future? And he, he was humble enough to say to himself, I don't know if I am, you know, I, I can stay on this, on this, on this success curve and I can take all the glory, but am I the right CEO to take it to 10 years plus? And so he fired himself. He metaphorically fired himself. He, he rewrote the role description and he got insight from all of his, uh, from all of his board, from all of his colleagues around whether he was the right person to lead it. Naturally they were saying yes, but he was really looking for that constructive feedback. And so I think that's a great example of, you know, what a great CEO or a great leader does is that they constantly assess themselves around whether they're actually, you know, fit, fit for purpose, <laughs> fit to lead the organization, uh, because Organizations need different types of leadership at different stages. Uh, and I think the rock star CEO naturally overstays, uh, or they, you know, get caught out and they, you know, end up getting fired early. But for the most part, they have a very clever way of being able to manipulate people. They have a clever way of being able to get the board on their side. Uh, and so, you know, they end up, and there are some actual Australian examples we've seen of that <laughs> recently. Um, I won't mention, uh, who because, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do that, but the, the, there, there are a lot of CEOs, I think that, you know, if they don't, if they don't humble, if they don't end up, uh, become, going into that more sort of humble path, then that ego will get them eventually. It does, create the sort of downfall for them eventually. Mm. Yeah, and and sometimes the downfall for the company as a result. And unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And just as a final question, just before we wrap up, uh, now you led the first ever Women of Inspiration retreat in Maui focused on feminine transformation. Can you tell us actually a bit more about the retreat, what its purpose was and the impact uh, that it actually had? Um, on the women that attended and also I suppose the impact it had on you too being surrounded by all these women yeah uh it was it, it came actually came from a vision a really strong vision a dream actually the women of inspiration retreat it was in 2017 and 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 because of where my career was going I did have access to a lot of you know influential women and and I and I could just see for myself that um, I was at this, at my own tipping point of, I can't continue to live and lead the way I am, uh, it, because I'm going to burn out, right? Uh, continuously. I'd already burnt out previously a number of times. And I asked myself, why, why am I constantly in this burnout, uh, in this burnout sort of place? And I realized it was because I was, conforming to what is a very masculine uh society what is a very patriarchal society and I'm, i don't i don't have any anger or disdain towards that i just accept it for what it is but i realized i was very disconnected to my actual feminine and i think when i see women in leadership i see that so much that they conform and think they need to behave and act uh, in a masculine way in order to further themselves and their career and uh, I realized that if we're actually going to make a change anywhere on the planet, we have to return to the feminine. And so um, I decided that it was important for women to uh, gr to go through like a personal transformation of returning to their feminine, but also realizing how important that is in terms of integrating themselves and their leadership so that they can have more impact and power. 
And and I think, you know, what I see so much is that women have, have also have a tendency to give away their power and not and not claim it. And so I, I thought to myself, if I can bring in some of this uh, idea and philosophy to some very influential women who I know have sort of embodied that masculine way of leading, um, then there could be a real opportunity to, to make a shift, uh, not just for these women and for them to feel more authentic in how they lead, but also have an impact on how we you know, affect leadership at a, at a sort of more global level. Uh, and so the impact that it had that a lot of these women you know, walked in um, with uh, a lot of weight that they were carrying and they did walk away being re- having a lot more clarity around what sort of impact they want to have and how they can do that in a way where they stay true to, to, to who they are and, and, and what they stand for and not feel like they have to compromise or give away their power. Uh, and so my philosophy is always if I can – if we can help inspire, you know, two or three people that have, you know, that are in positions of power, um, then then you're actually making a change. It's influencing the influencers is sort of how I uh, like to put it. And uh, I figured if we could get this small group of women from different cu- cultures, different countries in a room, what a powerful experience that would be, uh, you know, doing this this deep personal transformation but also this leadership impact work together and it just ended up really uh yeah tra- giving them a, a, a new lease on what it means to be a female leader and it was good for you too it was amazing it was amazing yeah and that's the beautiful thing about the work that uh, i'm in and involved in is that you know, I, I'm, I'm always having to change myself the whole time. You know, I, I, and like anyone who wants to be a conscious leader like yourself, I'm sure you're always uh, learning and growing from from what it is that you're trying to teach. Uh, as And so I think, yeah, or what you're trying to role model. So it was a beautiful experience overall. Um, Sincerely appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I know we're sort of working on different time zones at the moment, so um, I really and you know, thirty-seven weeks pregnant. So you know, for you to take the time out for us is is very much appreciated. Yeah, no, it's been great. I appreciate the uh, the real, honest, authentic conversation. It's been great. Wonderful. Thank you, Anna. And we, we, we look forward to having a game of basketball with you and Kate as well when you're back in Australia um, uh, with, with, with your little bub. <laughs> so, I look forward to that for sure. But we're, but we're not letting you and Kate be on the same team because Jamie and I would have no chance. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Anna, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Great. The Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.